experience. It's things that are true regardless of who you are and where you are and when you are. It's things that are eternally true. The truths of God. What he says is true about himself, about people, and about the world around you. Those eternal truths. And then as you go through life, you're facing different types of circumstances. Maybe it's a decision at work. Maybe it's a decision about who, should, who you should marry, how you should spend your money, things that you should say and not say. And, and you apply those objective truths about what God has said to, how, to the decisions and how you live in everyday life. That's the subjective reality. None of us are living the same life, right? Even Dave, who has a twin brother, he and his twin brother have different lives, right? You're facing different realities. Every one of us. That's the subjective part, meaning it's different from me. It's subject to your experiences. And so wisdom is applying God's objective truth to those subjective experiences. And so we're going to look in this passage and see what Jesus has to say about godly wisdom and the effects it will have on the decisions you make and the way that you're received by those around you. So here's the four things that I want to bring out of this text. First, godly wisdom will make you solemn. Godly wisdom will make you solemn. Second, Godly wisdom will make you celebrate. Third, godly wisdom will make you a target. Godly wisdom will make you a target. And fourth, godly wisdom will prove itself true one day. Let's go to that first point. Godly wisdom will make you solemn. In this passage, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. And and as Meredith read, you see that John the Baptist was in prison, and he'd heard about things that Jesus was doing, and he sent some of his workers just to confirm, is he really the guy that he says he is? And then Jesus explains how how greatly he thinks of John the Baptist, saying that there's no greater man born of woman than John the Baptist. But he also knew that John the Baptist was not well received by everybody in his audience where he was speaking that day. And so that's when he moved into saying, to what shall I compare this generation in verse 16? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, the current generation who was looking on the life of John the Baptist, who were looking on the life of Jesus, were saying, hey, you all aren't playing the way that we play. You, you play different. You're not playing according to our rules. You're foolish. You're, you're outside of our circle. You're not living according to the wisdom that we have. And so that, what Jesus is saying is, you all are rejecting us because of the way that we're living. And why were they rejecting John the Baptist? It says in verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. In other words, his, his solemn lifestyle of uh, fasting and prayer and the way that he lived didn't seem wise to them. So how was it that John the Baptist lived? If you want to flip in your copy of Scripture back to the third chapter of Matthew, it should just be a few pages Uh, 808 if you're in the pew bible starting in verse 1 in those days john the baptist came preaching in the wilderness of judea repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his path straight now john john wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So that's just a real brief snapshot of the way that John the Baptist lived his life. So he was living wisely because there was some eternal truth, and we'll get to that in just a moment, but eternal truth 
that he was holding dear that affected the way he lived. How did it affect the way he lived? It, it caused him to be, it, it affected where he lived. He spent a lot of time out in the wilderness, not in a comfortable place. He went out in the wilderness. He was making a statement by where he spent his time. It affected the clothes he wore. He wore garments of camel hair, n- not the most comfortable garments, not something that people in those days would look and be like, dude, that's some sweet camel hair. I'm going to give me some of that. They have that at H&M, I think. Um, it affected the food he ate. He ate locusts and wild honey. He wasn't feasting on fancy food that people would be envious of him. He was living a very rustic lifestyle, you might say. And it affected the way that he spoke. Most, most of the time when John the Baptist is referenced in the New Testament, it's talking about him preaching repentance, calling people to turn from their sin, identifying two people that they need to repent. They need to change the way that they are living. They need to look at what they're doing and see it the way that God does. So he had a very serious, serious message. So what is the eternal truth that John the Baptist had that affected the way that he lived? I submit that it was this, that God takes sin very seriously. The eternal truth that God takes sin very seriously. It's not something to joke about. It's not something that you can wink at. It's not something that you can toy with and it's going to be okay. John was convicted and overcome with this truth, objective truth, that God takes sin seriously with no exception. And because of that truth, he lived wisely in a way to make sure people knew that truth. Now, I'm not going to say that John the Baptist never smiled or had fun or ate anything else. But at least from what's recorded in Scripture, that was the tenor of his life. He lived a very solemn life to bring to people's attention that judgment was coming, that the rebellion against God would not be ignored forever, and that they needed to turn from those sins and be reconciled to God. So again, the objective truth that God takes sin seriously caused him to live wisely. He was living wisely by living very seriously eating the things he ate, saying the things he said, living where he lived, wearing the clothes that he wore. It was wise for him to do so. And so if that's true, I just wonder what that means for us. And at least I think knowing that God takes sin very seriously means that we should take sin very seriously. We shouldn't joke about it. We shouldn't be comfortable with sin in our lives. But it also should change the way that we talk to others. Because John took sin very seriously, but it didn't just cause him to live a holier life. It caused him to speak to others about their need for a Savior. And so that means that there will be times in your life that the world around you might think you're a fool for how seriously you're taking sin. There may be some in your family. There may be even some people who identify as Christians who would say, like, yeah, you, should, you shouldn't really tell people that they're sinners. That's offensive. That's, that's not wise. You're not going to have very many friends if you keep telling people that they're going to hell without Jesus. But it's wise to do that. If God takes sin seriously, if that is objective, eternally true, then it is wise for you to live in a way that helps other people understand that they are sinners and that God is going to take it seriously for them. You know, sometimes uh, a place I go where I get get my hair cut, and I'm just trying to think of an example of how this has played out in my life. I 
uh, the guy who cuts my hair, he sometimes will tell jokes um, that are just way inappropriate. Um, racist, usually. And so I have those uncomfortable moments where I really want this guy to like me. I do like him. He's good at cutting hair, uh, as you can see. Um, <laughs> but he will make jokes that, that somebody thinking according to God's wisdom cannot laugh at. You know, here's an eternal truth. God has created from one man all people who live on the planet Earth. And that though there may be different than pigmentations in our skin and facial structures and all that kind of stuff and language, all that, all human life is created in the image of God and is valuable. So when I'm sitting in that chair and I hear jokes that seem to say otherwise, I can't laugh at those jokes, and I don't. And not long ago, he said, hey, you want me to tell you a joke? And I said, as long as it's not racist, you can and so there was kind of an uncomfortable moment there, but, um, but I was sending a message to him. I was like, hey, that's not okay. You, know, you, can't, you can't say those things uh, to me, and I'm not going to participate in, in that with you. Uh, and he may think I'm foolish for being uptight about what, what's okay to joke about, but in reality, it's wise to do so. And I'm sure you've had those moments in your life where you're pressured to laugh at a joke that you you know you shouldn't, or you're pressured to participate in some kind of behavior uh, that is not wise. But you have to remember that it's wise for you to listen to what God's eternal truth is and apply it to your immediate circumstances. And we're going to talk about Jesus and him celebrating with sinners in a minute, but uh, I just want to note that Jesus, too, was a man of sorrows. We sang a song that mentions that uh, just a little bit earlier, Man of Sorrows, what a name. Yes, Jesus partied. Yes, Jesus had fun. Um, but he too took sin seriously. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, it's a very famous messianic prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus arrived on planet earth in human form, the prophet Isaiah was inspired by God to say these words about him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus too had solemn moments in his life where people rejected him because he was taking sin too seriously. And they didn't want to be around him. He made them uncomfortable because of the gravity with which he lived and with which he spoke. So the point I'm making is godly wisdom will make you solemn. If you keep in mind that truth, that God takes sin seriously, that's going to cause you to be serious sometimes. It's going to cause you to be solemn. It's going to cause you to be mournful as you look out at the world and see the way that sin is destroying people you love. You see the way that uh, cities are, are full of crime and, and murder and you look out and you see the way a government is misspending money and people are hurting and financially there's trouble. It, that should make you serious and should make you take sin seriously. It should make you speak to others about their sin. But how about some levity? Godly wisdom will make you celebrate. We see that in the life of Jesus here when this is the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let's look at a couple passages where it talks about Jesus' lifestyle. Matthew 9, verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. John 2, 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And the, and the passage goes on to explain that Jesus was there and his disciples were there with him also. So, yes, Jesus knew the eternal truth that God took sin seriously. But yet, we see Jesus at parties. We see him leisurely lounging at table, having long meals, having fun, having conversation with people who were sinners. People who were often ostracized from society, uh, people who treated others very wickedly, and yet Jesus put himself in context with them and enjoyed meals. The scripture says the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Man, he, he, he partied, he celebrated, he knew how to have fun, he knew how to hang out with people. So what were the eternal truths that Jesus knew that caused him to live in that way? What was he, what was he thinking about? What, were, what was guiding him in those moments? First, I would say that the kingdom of heaven is worth celebrating. Jesus knew that God wins. Jesus knew that God was good. Jesus knew that God was loving. And Jesus knew that one day... All sin would be eradicated. There would be no more tears, no more suffering, no more sickness. He knew that time was coming. And when you're assured of that fact, no matter how dark things get in this life, you should be inspired to celebrate a little bit, especially those of you, or particularly those of you who belong to Jesus and know that you're hidden in him and that one day you're going to be with him perfectly when, when creation is reconciled fully and this whole narrative that God's been telling since the beginning comes to consummation that it's going to be a really big party scripture describes that time as the marriage supper of the land this feast of people finally being free from their sin finally being joined to the god who they were designed to be with and jesus knew that reality and so he partied he he couldn't not party sometimes knowing that that was true but there's another eternal truth at play here that i think compelled jesus to live the way that he did and that's and that is that sinners needed to meet the Savior. Jesus knew that these hurting, lost, broken, ostracized, evil people needed a Savior. They needed to meet him. And so he went to them. He ate and drank with them. He partied with them. He had conversation with them. It was wise for him to do so. If it's true that the kingdom of heaven is coming, if it's true that sinners need a Savior then it is wise for us to celebrate. It is wise for you and me to be involved with people who are sinners. It's wise for us to be involved with those who are broken and hurting and are often seen as a blight on humanity. And I would say that Jesus did these things purposely. Again, he wanted them to know the Savior. He wanted them to see that there was hope for people who were hungry. There was hope for people who were thirsty. There was hope for prisoners. There was hope for people who knew they couldn't make it on their own. We've covered that in the Sermon on the Mount series, that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that they don't have anything in them to commend themselves to God. Because that's what you need. All the fitness he requires is to fill your need of him, as the hymn says. That's what God's looking for, for people who know they need a Savior. And so if that was true of Jesus, then let's live that way. How about we live that way also, that we celebrate? And if we do so, we even have sinners 
like every one of us, at our table? And how about we have sinners who aren't like us at our table as well? And let them see that there is hope, that there is a reason to celebrate, and that if they turn from their sin and trust in Christ, that they will have peace with God forever and ever. You may be feeling some tension. You're like, okay, Chase is talking about godly wisdom should make you solemn, and he's talking about godly wisdom should make you celebrate, and, and I, how, do I, how do I do both of those? How do, I, how do I hold both of those things at the same time? takes wisdom it really does it takes wisdom and thankfully we have a God who says if you want wisdom ask for it because I want to give it to you liberally you'll find that in the first chapter of James God wants you to be wise he wants to give you wisdom and he will seek it that is a prayer that is guaranteed to get an answer according to scripture if you lack wisdom let him ask for it so I can't give you a magic bullet that's going to say all right, well, two-thirds of your day should be spent being serious about sin, and then a third should be spent celebrating with sinners. And it, there's, no, there's no formula I can give you for how do you, how do you hold these things together? H- how do you make these things work? How do you know when you, you're being too serious? How do you know when you're partying too much? I, I can't give you that. I can't give you that. But I, what I can commend to you is the body of Christ. I can say, look around this room and gather with other people who are in your life and who can say, hey, Joe, I think you should be a little bit more serious about sin. You know, I think you should have had that conversation with your coworker about how they need to know Jesus. Or maybe they can say, hey, Brian, like, dude, you've been partying too much. You know? You're like, let's get serious about this, man. Jesus is coming back. People need to know about it. So you need to have people in your life who love you and who care about you and who want what's best for you and who know obeying God is what's best for you. So that you don't get off the rails on either side of that. That's what community is about. That's why, that's why community groups are so integral into the life of Delta. Because we know we need people who know us and who we know we have trust. Because we know each other loves Jesus. And we have trust because we know that they want what's best for me. And I want what's best for them. So they can say things to me. And it's not offensive. They can say things to me about living in a way that better reflects Jesus. And it's a good thing because I know that, man, they're just trying to make me more like Jesus. They want me to be more like him. And so if you're not in a community group and the pastor didn't ask me to make this commercial, this is, it's not even in my notes. I'm just thinking, man, you've got to get in that. You've got to come on board and find people here in this church who will, who will come alongside you and help you know how to live wisely. Because what, what's at the core of our Christian faith, of our confession, is that we can't make it on our own. That's, that's at the core foundational principle that we believe about the gospel. And that means we can't make it without Jesus. And Jesus says we can't make it without his people. You can't say yes to Jesus and not yes to his church. So um, that was free. <laughs> but here's what we have to avoid. Here, here's, the, here's a big temptation in my life, and I think it keeps me from being more effective for the kingdom. It's this desire that to live in a way that God says, man, Chase is living a wise life. And I also want the world to be like, Chase is living a wise life. I want to have my cake and eat it too. I want everybody to think I'm wise. I want y'all to think I'm wise. I want God to think I'm wise. I want lost people to think I'm wise. And, and I don't want there to be any tension there, right? I, I just, I want everybody to be happy with me. I want everybody to think that I'm this good guy and I love everybody and that I make good decisions and everybody should be like me. I mean, 
dude, I can't live up to whatever you said this morning, John, so take it back. (laughs) But thank you. But that keeps me from being effective in the kingdom because because I'm a double-minded man, Scripture says. I'm trying to please this and I'm trying to please that and I'm not trying to please God as supreme. And it makes it hard to be effective. It makes it hard to make the wise decisions that you and I need to make if we're trying to make sure everybody thinks that I'm wise. Because the scriptures that we read during our, our, our musical worship time um, talked about the cross being foolishness. And so anytime we're holding that out, to those who are perishing, to those who do not know Jesus, do not acknowledge God as king of the universe, it's not going to be wise. They're not going to think I'm wise. There's no way for me to hold out Jesus Christ crucified on the cross as the only hope for mankind and for the world to think that that's a good idea. It's impossible. But yet we try to do that, right? We try to find a way to talk about Jesus that people think is wise. Even if they don't accept it, we want them to think it's a good idea, right? But this passage teaches us that godly wisdom will make us a target. It will. We see it in the life of John the Baptist, right? So Jesus said he, there was no man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. So by Jesus' standards, he was a pretty big deal. And if John the Baptist was a big deal, he still got rejected by the world around him. By human wisdom, John the Baptist looked like a fool. Right? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, was rejected and thought foolish because of the way that he was living. So if Jesus was thought foolish for the way that he lived, then what hope do you and I have that the world's going to look at us and be like, Good job. It's not going to happen. And here's why. Because denying yourself for Christ is foolish by, the, by worldly standards. Denying yourself for Christ is foolish by the worldly standards. So to, to, to even, I mean, there's people in your life, I guarantee you, if they knew that you were giving a tithe or other offering to, to a church every week, they would think you are a fool. You could spend that money. Think of all the things you could buy with that money. You fool. Why would you do that? They would think you're crazy. Or if they saw that you're giving up how much of your time per week towards being with the people of God, they'd be like, do you know how many rounds of golf you could play if you weren't tied up in church every Sunday morning? There's nothing wrong with golf, by the way. Proverbs 13.25 says, The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the belly of the wicked suffers want. What that's saying to us is that those who are in Christ and have found their ultimate satisfaction in knowing and belonging to him, they can be content without things that the world thinks it needs. People who belong to God and are satisfied in him can be content without the things that the world thinks it needs. The the belly of the wicked suffers want. In other words, there's no... there's, there, the appetites cannot be quenched if you don't have ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. You'll always be trying to grab for something else. More money, more status, bigger house, nicer car, more friends, prettier wife, more handsome husband, whatever it is. You're not going to be satisfied unless you know the eternal truth that only in God can one be satisfied. And on the other side of that, Loving sinners is foolish by legalistic standards. 
So denying yourself for Christ is foolish by worldly standards, but also loving sinners is foolish by legalistic standards. That's, that was the deal here, right? That's why they were criticizing Jesus. They were calling him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, as though that was a bad thing for him. <laughs> he, was not, he was not insulted by being called a friend of tax collectors and sinners, by the way. So spending your time, your life, giving of yourself, being in relationship with people with whom it's difficult sometimes to be in relationship with because of their lifestyle, that will be seen as foolish. That would be seen as flirting too much with sin by some people. Unfortunately, some people who would call themselves Christians, none of them are in this room, praise the Lord. But, but there will be some people who see, if you're truly pressing in to love sinners the way that Jesus did and is calling you to do so, there will be people who think that you're foolish. There will be people who think that, and you're risking too much by hanging around with those folks. They might rub off on you. <laughs> they might take advantage of you. All they want is money anyway. Why are you spending time? Why are you loving those people? Why are you friends with those people? You're probably just getting drunk with those people. That'll happen. Living according to godly wisdom will make that happen. And so if your hope is living a life so that legalistic people will look at you and think that you're doing it right, forget about it. It's not going to happen. There will be some people who are offended and incensed at your lifestyle if you're living like Jesus. So we have to remember, John the Baptist and Jesus both were rejected because of their wise living. They were rejected by the world, I should say, because of their wise living. And we can take comfort in this, too, knowing what Jesus said, right? John 15, verses 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. John uh, says this in 1 John 3.13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So Jesus and John both gave us the encouragement, knowing that, hey, you're going to be hated. You're going to be rejected. The world will look at your lifestyle. They will not see it as wise. They will see it as foolish. They will reject you because of that. So we should be prepared for that. And remember that our hope isn't that all these audience around us will think that we're wise and that we're good. We have an audience of one. We have God alone to please. We want him to look on our lives and be like, he's living, he or she is living a godly life. He or she is living according to godly wisdom. Finally, let me, let me just remind you what this passage said too, that godly wisdom will prove itself one day. Our hope is not in being thought wise by the world. And our hope is not even in being thought wise by God. Because you could start today and for the rest of your life never, ever, ever make an unwise decision again. And if you get to heaven and God says, why should I let you in? You said, well, I made a lot of wise decisions according to godly wisdom. He'll say, depart from me. If your hope for eternity is in living a godly life now, then you're missing the point. 
Godly wisdom is good. It will make your life function to your advantage according to God's definition, but it will not secure eternity for you. Our hope is not in being wise. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. So that tension I mentioned earlier where it's like, I can't decide. Should I be solemn? Should I party? I don't know. Take hope in the fact that Jesus Christ was wise every moment of his life. When we say that he was sinless, that means a number of things. It means that he never, ever disobeyed the will of God, not even for a nanosecond. That means that every moment of Jesus' life, he was loving God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. That means every nanosecond of his life, he was loving his neighbor as himself. And if I had to count how many times today already that I wasn't loving God or other people in that way, good night. I mean, you would chase me out of here. You'd be like, that dude should not be preaching. (laughs) But that's not our hope. Jesus already was perfectly loving and perfectly wise on our behalf. And that's what the good news of the gospel is. That even though you're not wise, even though you have sinned and rebelled against God's design and purpose for your life, that if you trust in Jesus Christ, God will look upon his life instead of yours. He will accept you into his family rather than rejecting you for eternity. And he will love you perfectly as though you never made an unwise decision. And that's scandalous, man. That is scandalous grace right there. That God will overlook, because of what Jesus Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection, will overlook all the junk of your world. All those times where you spent money on self instead of your kids. All those times that you lied to get ahead at work. All those times that you did things that are infinitely unwise. God will overlook that and accept you in Jesus Christ and forgive you forever and ever. And that's a foolish message according to worldly wisdom. But it is the truth of, truth of God. So how might God be calling you to respond? Maybe God has been prompting you to do something and you're afraid to do it because you're afraid that people are going to think you are foolish if you do so. That could be big things. Maybe God is calling you to be a missionary somewhere. But you're afraid that your parents are going to say, man, you're throwing away your education, you're throwing away your retirement, you're throwing away all that to do what? That's foolish. That's foolish. Maybe God's calling you to downsize your home so you can be more financially generous to the kingdom and to people in need. The world will say that's foolish. Maybe, maybe this hits a little closer to home. Maybe God is asking you just to share your faith for the first time with a friend. And in the back of your mind, there's a voice saying, that's foolish. It's not time yet. It'd be foolish for you to bring Jesus up now. But God's calling you to be solemn about sin and to love sinners and to preach his good news to those who need it. Maybe God's calling you to speak up. When your coworker, friend, neighbor, family member, whoever is telling inappropriate jokes. Maybe God is calling you to host a backyard Bible club this summer. Do you still need hosts? No. 
He still might be calling you to, even if Johnny says that they don't need anybody. He may be calling you to to minister in this church in a way that you know, as soon as you're identified with this church in that way, that there will be people who look at you like you're a fool. Maybe God is calling you to invite people into your home who others find offensive. Because that would be foolish. They'll get dirt on your furniture and they'll eat all your food and their kids will break your kids' toys or whatever it might be. I don't know. I don't know what God is calling you to do. And I don't know what foolishness you're hoping to avoid. But foolishness for Christ is better than what the wisdom of the world offers. John the Baptist wasn't worried about appearing as though he cared too much about God's holiness. He wasn't worried about that. And Jesus wasn't carried about looking like he loved sinners too much. And I hope that would be true for you. Now, finally, somebody here might be thinking, I don't really know what he's talking about, but I know I'm lost, and I know I need redemption. I know that I've made a mess of my life. I don't even know where to begin with listing out all the unwise things I've done. And maybe you're scared of surrendering your life to Jesus. You're scared to finally take that step and be like, yes, I believe the gospel. I give my life to it. I want to live according to Jesus' purposes. I want to find all my hope in him. But there's still a voice telling you that, yeah, your dad's going to think you're a fool or your mom's going to think you're a fool if you say that stuff's true or your friends will think that you're a fool if you believe the Christian message. I, don't, I can't convince you. And that's not really my job. All I can tell you what I found true in my life that that there's greater joy, there's greater hope, there's ba- greater sense of purpose and belonging than you'll ever find in anything else. And yes, you may lose friends and you may lose family members by surrendering your life to Christ. And everybody in this world may think you're a fool for eternity, but you will get God for eternity. And that's an exchange that I'd make every day. The band's going to come and I just ask you to pray through. What is God calling you to do? How is God calling you to respond to this message. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel so that we have forgiveness and we have hope and we have redemption even though we've made foolish decisions. And God, even though we will make foolish decisions again, we are fully assured that because of Jesus that we are forgiven and accepted perfectly in your arms forever and ever and that it can never, ever be taken away from us. And God, I pray for people here who are still on the fence, that they would hear this message and be compelled, God, that they would, they would, they would want to belong to you, that they would want to renounce their, their, the wisdom of the world and embrace your wisdom, that they would stop fearing being rejected by men and thought a fool, And that they would fear you instead. That they would know you take sin seriously. But that you love sinners deeply. God, help us at this church to be a better witness for Christ. By living according to your wisdom. And rejecting what the world says. Do this for your glory, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.